Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Missionary Enterprise, with a message titled, When World Views Collide. So turning your Bibles to Acts 14, verses 8 to 18, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. As North American culture continues to devolve, the things that are believed to be true continue to change at a pace, well, it's just breathtaking. Consider this one reality. It was once considered to be true beyond reproach that male and female were the two genders that make up the human race and that biology determines which one you are. And in just a few short years, how things have changed. You know, I recently saw one list that claimed there are 72 genders. And I won't belabor the point, but that this is at odds with observable and objective biology. And I simply point out what is now, at least among the cultural elites, to be true. But let's move on. Consider also the very nature of what it means to be human. Over the span of 200 years, what it means to be human has radically changed. Once thought to be the crown of God's creation, many now believe that human beings are the product of random chance plus time. We're a fluke, no special place in the world, no destiny. If you want to know why so many people are lacking purpose and teetering on the brink of despair, look no further than what they have been taught about themselves. Consider also how morality has changed. We now live in a world in which morality and the highest good seems to change radically every 10 to 15 years. See, I remember when I was young, sex outside of marriage, although it was done, was considered to be wrong. We're so far beyond that as sexual rules are constantly evolving. And I mention all of this not to criticize. I mean, that's for another time, perhaps. You know, I mention it only to point out that for many Christians who want to be faithful to present the gospel lovingly and winsomely and in a way that has an impact, these cultural changes have left some of us confused. How do I present Christ when I'm not sure where to begin? Past generations, at least in the West, had the assurance that there were certain anchor points or starting points. We could agree on some things, and our dialogue about Christ and his gospel well, could go forward from there. But now we might wonder where there is a starting point. Is any dialogue possible? You know, for those who wonder about such things, Acts 14, 8 to 18 provides you know, a wonderful case in point. There's so much to learn from these verses. We've been following Paul's first missionary journey, and we've followed him and Barnabas now to the Roman province of Galatia. In the first city of Galatia, that was the city of Iconium, Paul and Barnabas, as was their custom, entered into a Jewish synagogue and spoke of Jesus. Now, there was a starting point there. I mean, the synagogue believed in one true God. They believed in the scriptures. They believed in the hope of the Messiah. And to some extent, they had heard some of the events of Jerusalem concerning Jesus. That's a great starting point. But as we also know, Paul and Barnabas, through threats of mob violence, were forced to leave Iconium. And the next section in our text, that is the beginning of Acts 14, verse 8, we, we read the words, now at Lystra. You know, here's what we know about the city of Lystra. You know, if there was a Jewish community there, it was very, very small. And it is for this reason that for the very first time in their missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas don't start by entering a synagogue because there is none there. And by the way, this might be the reason Paul and Barnabas went there. The organized opposition from the Jewish leadership had become extreme. 
You know, this was a place where they were less likely to face the zealots from the religious community. And that also meant that the familiar place of beginning was gone. And what we find in in this passage is the story of two men sharing the gospel when the meaning of everything is in question. So let's start reading our text, Acts 14, 8 to 10. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, we might wonder where Paul and Barnabas found the venue to begin their preaching ministry. But most Greek cities had in the marketplace some place where speakers were permitted and even encouraged to bring their message. We know that later when Paul was in Athens, he began at the marketplace there. And Luke records his observations. He said the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. People love new speakers and new ideas and the opportunity to argue about it. Now, as we will see, the city of Lystra was nowhere near as sophisticated as Athens, but it might have been that Lystra provided a very similar, culturally acceptable place where a speaker with new ideas was permitted to present them. Now, Paul preaches, and Luke doesn't tell us what he actually says. But he does tell us that there was a man there who was crippled from birth and that this man, sitting in the crowd of people, is listening. Luke then says that Paul looked intently at this man, for Paul could see that he had faith to be made well, or as other translations put it, he had faith to be healed. There are two things that strike me as I read this. The first is the question of how Paul knows that. And the easy answer is that the Holy Spirit has revealed it to him. Paul became aware of this as the Holy Spirit was telling him. I don't know about you, but I have on a number of occasions when, you know, I've been sharing the gospel with someone, suddenly seen the person I'm sharing with, that that person has the faith to confess their sins and to confess Christ. I've always understood those moments, not as moments of, you know, my great insight, but rather it's the Holy Spirit revealing to me that the time is right. But the second issue here is one that seems strange. How is it that this man has the faith to be made well? I mean, is Paul speaking about healing? And that seems unlikely because all of the sermons that we have of Paul in Acts and all of his written letters, he never speaks about what we might call the doctrine of healing. I mean, he does mention gifts of healing in 1 Corinthians, but he never expands on that. And so it's highly unlikely that in an evangelistic sermon in a strange place, Paul begins with a doctrine of healing. It seems that the verb translated as faith to be made well can also be translated as faith to be saved. You know, we also know that during the ministry of Jesus, we find that faith in Jesus is linked to the miracles that people experience. I mean, when Jesus healed someone, he would sometimes say, your faith has saved you. Now, Luke doesn't fully explain all these things, but the likely conclusion to be reached from reading this account is that As the lame man listens to Paul explaining about Jesus, this man is filled with faith and the Holy Spirit shows it to Paul. And in that moment, Paul addresses him and tells him to stand up onto his feet. And instantly, the man stands up onto his feet and to the astonishment of the crowd, he begins walking. I mean, those who knew him are astonished beyond belief. Now, we need to stop here and go back to what we actually know about the city of Lystra. Apparently, there had been in that city a legend about the Greek god Zeus and his son Hermes. 
as I understand it, at the time of Paul, when they were in the city. This legend was then over 50 years old. In the legend, Zeus and Hermes once come to the hill country of Perga. They're disguised as mortals and they're looking for lodging. They asked in a thousand homes and everyone turned them away. And finally, a poor elderly couple welcomed them and at great personal sacrifice put them up, fed them and cared for their needs. And in appreciation, the gods made them into a priest and a priestess and turned their humble home into a temple. And as for the others who refused to welcome the two gods, the two gods destroyed all their homes. Now, remember, we're talking about a clash of worldviews. You would think when Paul preached about Jesus, everyone would be like the lame man. They would get what Paul was talking about. Instead, worldviews tend to be filters through which we interpret reality. And so what does the crowd do when they see the miracle? I mean, do they worship Jesus? And the answer is no. In fact, they interpret what has happened through their worldview. So I'm reading Acts 14, 11 to 13. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, please notice, Luke speaks of the crowds and not just the crowd. I think Luke is telling us that the number of people that were there was considerable. You know, perhaps we should think, you know, more than just a few hundred, but perhaps, you know, a few thousand. People were standing up and they were shouting. And of course, Paul and Barnabas couldn't know what they were saying. Lystra, to the most part, was a bilingual city. People spoke the official language of Greek, but they communicated all the important stuff in their own Lyconian language. And so Paul and Barnabas would not have known what the crowd thinks. They think that Zeus and Hermes are back again, but this crowd does not want to make the same mistake that the last group of people did and didn't welcome them, so they decide on a different approach. That's a clash of worldviews. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. What has been accomplished is a result of people like you listening right now who share our hearts for this mission. In particular, those who have chosen to join us in ministry as monthly partners. As we begin a new year, perhaps becoming an 1119 monthly partner might be something you'd consider. Your investment in this ministry assures that people of all ages and stages of life have opportunity to discover more about a new life in Christ through the study of God's Word. Your partnership in 2022 will provide the resources to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. To learn more about the 1119 Monthly Partnership Program, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at one 800 663-2425. I started by saying that a person or a culture's worldview will affect how they hear the gospel or whether they will hear it at all. Remember Jesus in his parable of the sower who went out to sow said that some of the seed fell on the hardened path and the birds of the air ate it before the seed had time to penetrate. 
And when his disciples asked him to explain the parable, he said that the hardened soil represents the person who, when he hears the word of God, is unable to understand it, and so the evil one comes and takes away that which was sown. Now, in that parable, Jesus doesn't explain why it is that some people are unable to understand the gospel. It really isn't that hard to understand. It doesn't require a sophisticated IQ or a high level of education. So what's the problem? But here in the city of Lystra, well, we begin to see the problem, don't we? We have a population steeped in polytheism and in legends and in superstitions and myths. Everything they hear and see is filtered through their worldview. And so from our perspective, reading Luke's account, we might, you know, scratch our heads and wonder how it's possible after Paul has been declaring Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, and then the forgiveness that's found by faith in him. And then Paul performs an outstanding miracle by healing a layman. So why is it that the people can't understand that this is Jesus among them? And the answer is, Their polytheistic worldview now interprets for them what they have just seen. Relying on the myths that they have been taught, they come to the conclusion that Zeus and Hermes have returned, that in their worldview accounts for the miracle. And as to what Paul said, well, that might be put in the realm of an enigma or that he's simply speaking in another way that the gods sometimes speak. You know, and the point of application for us is that the same thing happens in our day. For instance, in our culture, it's quite popular to speak about truth, not as an objective reality, but as a subjective experience. And so it's now common for people to speak about my truth and your truth. See, for those of us who understand that truth is the thing that exists apart from our experience or our apprehension, you know, all that kind of talk is strange. But for people in our culture, where they discount the very idea of truth, And so the words, my truth, is indistinguishable from the words, my perspective, or my experience, or even the way I like to see things. And so if you say to such a person, look, Jesus is the only way to the Father, well, they might smile and and they might understand that is your truth. That is, for you, Jesus is the only way to the Father. And so clashing worldviews assure us that the impact of Jesus as the only way to the Father is simply lost in communication. Well, let's get back to Paul and Barnabas and the people of Lystra. You know, they have them pegged. Barnabas, they assume, was Zeus, and we might not understand that, but, you know, Zeus is the highest god, and since Paul is giving leadership, we might expect they would call Paul Zeus, but in their thinking, the the chief god doesn't do any work. If there is someone speaking, it must be the lesser god who's doing that. Again, notice the clash of worldviews. To Paul, to work, to labor, to serve, as Jesus taught him, is the pathway of our Savior. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus wash his disciples' feet and serve them? But for the citizens of Lystra, it's always the inferior who does the work. So can't you see from the outset, it seems impossible to communicate the gospel of Jesus in just that environment. But now Paul seizes the moment. He sees that the priest of Zeus is now engaged in wanting to offer up sacrifices to them. And by the way, do you remember what Jesus said? He said that kings of the earth like to take the seat of honor and lord it over people. You might remember Captain James Cook. You know, the indigenous people of Hawaii had thought that he was a god, and so they had deified him. But by all indication, Cook allowed for that, and it suited his purpose. But at least, well, this is how the story goes. Whether or not it's true, I don't know. But when his ship was driven back to the island, it was apparent that he wasn't a god at all. And eventually, they simply rose up and killed him. 
But Paul and Barnabas were really of a different sort. So let's continue to read Acts 14, 14 and 15. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. See, I'm assuming that when Luke communicates that when Barnabas and Paul heard of it, he means that since the temple of Zeus was outside the city, and since the people were shouting in the Lyconian language, it was not apparent to the two men exactly what was going on, but the confusion was about to clear up. And so as a sign of mourning and crisis, they tear their garments, and in that, I mean, they get everyone's attention. And Paul's first words, why are you doing these things? Now, if Paul had given them time to respond, they might have said, well, we're doing these things because we know who you are, and so we must worship you. But of course, Paul doesn't give them time to respond. Rather, he says, we are also men. That is to say, we're not gods. How can we make this plainer? I mean, our nature, our makeup, our being is of like substance to you. We're regular human beings. Let those words sink in. Now, you can almost imagine the dissonance. If they're only human, then how in the world did they pull off that trick of making that lame man, who many of them knew, he was lame from birth and now he's walking? But Paul's not answering that. Rather, he says, look, we came to you to turn you from these vain things to turn you to a living God. And notice, he doesn't use the plural gods, but singular. We want you to turn to the one God who is the creator of all that is. Not the God of the land or the God of the sky and of the sea and the God of luck and the God of healing and the God of rain and thunder, but the God who made all things exist. You know, in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts, author Don Richardson makes the point that most of the world's polytheisms have the belief in one supreme God who is creator of all. Now, even though that thought is not often taught and considered, yet the idea of one true God remains locked in the human consciousness. It is as if in a room of lies and half-truths, someone suddenly tells the truth, and once the truth is told, it lays everything bare. So let's go on to verses 16 and 17. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now, verse 16 is really important in our understanding of God's dealings with the nations. In past generations, that is, from the time of the spreading out of the nations, from the Tower of Babel onward, right to the time of Christ, God had allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Now, of course, the nations does not include the nation of Israel. Israel was his chosen people, but the rest of the human race, they were allowed to carry on without the light of the revelation of God. I mean, the implications really are huge. I mean, for years, God allowed the nations to go on without sending them an evangelist or a preacher. And yet, says Paul, that doesn't mean there was no evidence of his existence or the kind of response to him that was necessary. Didn't you know, he asks them, that it was the creator of all things who was constantly blessing your lives with an abundance of what you needed. You know, theologians often call that general grace. That is, there are different kinds of graces. Saving grace is when God acts in kindness to forgive sins and reconcile us to himself. But general grace is when God acts in kindness, I mean, every year when the harvest comes in and when the rain falls from heaven. 
and when the soil is fertile enough to provide an environment in which seeds sprout. And isn't it grace when our stomachs are full, and even more so? Isn't it grace in this sin-cursed world when there is still room for family and friends and joy and laughter? I mean, where did this come from so that human hearts could still be rich with smiles and rich with relationships? Yes, says Paul, he's satisfied your hearts with food and with laughter, he says. And then after all that, Luke adds one more line. Verse 18 reads, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. It gives us an indication that worldviews are not quickly broken down, but, and this is grace, even though they scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them, yet they do restrain them. And somewhere, a small opening must have been shown to them. Eventually, the people would see that Paul and Barnabas were not gods at all. They were ordinary men, ordinary men indeed, but ordinary men who had an extraordinary story to tell. And if they weren't gods but ordinary men, who caused that layman to walk? There must be an explanation for that, and there's a lesson for us here. We, like Paul and Barnabas, do live in a world where the thinking of most people is just simply miles from the truths of the gospel. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit won't open a door and show us a place of beginning. You know, in this case, it's simply showing them that the Creator has given them grace in all things. You know, may this story inspire us to share the gospel with people who are miles from Christ. After all, it's not impossible. They too may come to a saving knowledge. John, thanks for your message. I think it would be helpful though, if maybe you could give us some tips on how we best start a conversation about Jesus? Well, you know, I guess it depends a great deal on the the spiritual history of the person that we're talking about, and I do think that's a place to begin. Just ask people, I mean, do you have, you know, what's your spiritual history? I mean, did you go to church? I mean, did you go to a mosque? Uh, Were you trained in any way? Or, uh, you know, were you just raised in a secular background? And get people to talk about their own situation, and then we might move from that to talk about the Creator, God who created all things, and the fact that we owe him a debt of gratitude, I think we move then to the whole issue of sin and the need of a Savior. But I think just asking people uh, for their spiritual background is the starting point in most places. We should go there. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, the missionary enterprise right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We're praying that 2022 would be a year that you'd experience the fellowship of the Lord like no other. We believe earnestly to do this means to commit ourselves to prayer and to the reading and study of God's Word. So we want to encourage you to make a commitment to read through the Bible this year. There are so many resources available that can assist you in achieving this goal, including Dr. John's reading plan, available at backtothebible.ca or printed in our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine, and it's free just for your asking. Whatever resource you choose, your commitment to reading the Bible every day will allow you the opportunity to know the God of the Bible as never before. Join us, would you? Begin today. Experience the story of your redemption in the pages of God's book. 
For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, its resources, or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.